CJT Chat, presented by the Journal of Athletic Training, the official journal of the National Athletic Trainers Association. I'm Dr. Shelby Baez, an assistant professor in the Department of Kinesiology at Michigan State University, and I'll be temporarily taking over hosting duties from Dr. Kara Radzak on JAT Chat for the next episodes. Today, I have the pleasure of being joined by Dr. Jessica Wallace and Ms. Tamara Hibbler. They are authors of Examining Concussion Non-Disclosure in Collegiate Athletes Using a Health Disparities Framework in Consideration of Social Determinants of Health from an upcoming issue in the Journal of Athletic Training. Dr. Wallace is an assistant professor in the Department of Health Science at the University of Alabama, and Ms. Hibbler is an associate athletic trainer at the University of Arkansas. Jessica and Tamara, thank you both so much for joining me today. So just starting off, what led you all to examine concussion non-disclosure in collegiate athletes? Well, thanks for having us today. So um, the purpose for this paper was really to do a parallel study uh, that we did with our uh, with the high school athlete population. So a couple of years ago, we collected some data and we published on concussion non-disclosure um, in high school athletes. And this has really been done widely by several researchers and scholars in the field of athletic training. And so we wanted to take um, some studies that we had previously done and do parallel work within the collegiate athlete population to see how things um, were measuring up, to see if there was any differences, similarities, and really these findings can help uh, gauge um, future interventions, work in concussion disclosure, um, and clinical practice. So uh, you, you mentioned in the paper that one of the issues that you are wanting to explore as relates to concussion non-disclosure is this consideration of social determinants of health. Uh, can you all just discuss what this actually what this means and what are some of the social determinants that are important to explore in this population? Yeah, absolutely. So we know that social determinants of health are really where people live, work, learn, grow, develop, play, all of these powerfully shape health and health behaviors. So for this paper specifically, we employed the uh, social determinants of health model by Drs. Braveman and Williams, looking at really five main factors, those being um, family socioeconomic position. Within the context of this study, we used um, free and reduced lunch status uh, when they were um, high school athletes also race and ethnicity as a social construct, physical environment, so where people live, um, neighborhoods, schools that they attend, et cetera, social relationships, so really who people are around, so their parents, their peers, their coaches, um, their aunts, their uncles, their neighbors, um, and healthcare access. And within the context of this study, we use access to an athletic trainer um, in their high school. So many different types of uh, social factors that could potentially be influencing a concussion non-disclosure. Um, so what all did you identify as it relates to these social determinants of health and concussion non-disclosure in collegiate athletes? Yeah, so even though, you know, these are um, really categorized as social determinants, some of them are very much structural determinants of health, right? So here we're looking at healthcare access in terms of an athletic trainer. So there are many schools, um, high schools um, within the, the U.S. that really have very low access to athletic trainers. And so we thought this was one of the main ones to throw into our analyses and our models, um, so when we looked at this, like within our paper, we didn't ask them um, 
and this was all self-reported data on a survey, we asked our student athletes, did they have access to an athletic trainer in high school? Just yes or no. And then also, did they qualify for free and reduced lunch um, when they were in high school? And so when we looked at these within our models, right, so we actually included three of the uh, Braveman and Williams social determinants, um, uh, race, race, socioeconomic position in terms of Title I's school status um, and free and reduced lunch, and then also um, healthcare access, so that being access to an athletic trainer. And what we found is that these did not lead to non-disclosure in collegiate athletes. So different from what we found in the high school athlete population, where um, the racial differences that we saw in the high school athlete population were very much driven by poor access to athletic trainers um, and Title I school status or free and reduced lunch status. We really didn't see parallel findings. And so for us, that was actually very positive. And so we kind of took that as, well, in the collegiate population, if we're seeing lower disclosure or self-reported non-disclosure, that could mean um, or be indicative of at the collegiate level when our student athletes have equivalent access to athletic trainers to report injuries. Um, these are powerful drivers in mitigating and reducing uh, non-disclosure in our uh, collegiate athlete population. So very interesting um, findings um, and actually very positive that we didn't find parallel things um, that we found within the high school athlete population. So access seems to be a, a really key factor in order to reduce concussion non-disclosure. Um, you, you mentioned uh, when you first uh, started discussing some of the results, this difference between social and structural uh, could you elaborate a little bit more on uh, what you mean by the differences between social determinants and structural determinants? Yeah, so um, in ways they are sort of blended together, right? So when we look at social determinants, a lot of these can be very in, um, individualistic, right? So measures, so for example, did you uh, qualify for free and reduced lunch? That's more of an individual and a personal social determinant based off of a family socioeconomic position. However, structural is very, very much or, or could be as a result of just what neighborhood that people live in, right? So in terms of what is um, available in terms of access. So for example, um, if there's no athletic trainer at the high school um, and there's also reduced resources within the school, it's very hard for athletes to disclose and then get the care that they need for a, con con a concussion. So structural is more of you know, their environment, and then also history. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so along the lines of some of your results, um, what was interesting, though, is that uh, you found that race wasn't associated with concussion non-disclosure. Uh, can you provide some insights into these results? And you mentioned the previous high school sample and the collegiate sample, um, potentially making some, some connections between those two different populations. Yeah, absolutely. So um, within this study with collegiate athletes, we did not find any differences by race and non-disclosure. One of the first things that we really need to be transparent about is this, we really had a very low number of Black athletes that reported non-disclosure, right? So making some of those parallel comparisons a little bit more challenging, right? Um, however, 
I think that the authorship team, as we were really digesting the, these results, and we looked at race both as a, a confounder and an effect modification measure, right? So the way we actually measured it, um, still found no differences. And to us, this is actually a really positive finding. So collegiate athletes, you know, having access to athletic trainers, more of a level playing field in terms of where they're living, uh, resources um, at their fingertips, even socioeconomic resources. This is more so leveling the playing field in reducing the disparities that we're seeing um, at the um, high school athlete level. So tying back to what you were saying previously, this access and seeing how fundamental access is to leveling the playing field to provide, uh, to reduce concussion non-disclosure, I'm sure amongst many other different types of uh, concerns that we may, or that our collegiate athletes may encounter. So what I think it's also cool to highlight is that when we think about research, oftentimes we think we don't see a difference and that's a bad thing. Um, so it's also really cool to see with this particular study that we can see these null results and it's actually very beneficial for us to, to acknowledge. So you all did, did find some differences as relates to race for specific uh, for reported reasons for non-disclosure. Can you all elaborate on what some of those reasons um, that you all identified? Yeah, so two really big ones that stuck out um, within the research were um, Black athletes being more likely to report that they did not say they had a concussion due to, we assume, assimilating to their environment of, I don't want to look weak. I don't want to look like I don't want to participate. There was something about the, the team aspect of they didn't want to look weak to their teammates, coaches, and other stakeholders involved in those sports. Um, and then the second was that Black athletes more often reported um, compared to their white counterparts that um, they didn't know they had a concussion. They didn't have the knowledge um, that the things that they were experiencing, some of the symptoms they were experiencing were even related to a concussion. And that really stuck out because although we didn't see these big differences in terms of non-disclosure overall, there were still really pertinent reasons why people were not reporting. And those were significant findings for us um, to add a perspective to the data of why these things were happening when they did not report. So I thought that was really interesting, even though we did find some really awesome stuff um, in terms of um, equity, right? Um, coming into the collegiate setting and seeing some of those disparities decrease, there were still some really big reasons why some of our athletes were not reporting uh, having a concussion. So Tam, something you, you said really stuck out to me was that um, Black athletes did not even realize that they were having symptoms of concussion. Uh, can you all talk a little bit about that? Why do we potentially see this differences between Black and white athletes as it relates to being able to identify concussion symptoms? I think the biggest thing goes back to some of the previous research that you see in high school is that it's the access, it's the resources. It's the big thing that sticks out to me as a clinician is not having an athletic trainer there in the setting, um, mostly in high school, to give that education, to be there, to even be a resource for our student athletes. And that makes a difference. And I know that Dr. Wallace can, can really fill in for me here on this one, but it's really, it goes back and ties back into the social determinants of health. It's really about that access and the type of healthcare that is available for them. 
that you see a little bit changes when things are more on an even and equitable playing field in the collegiate setting. And you, the other piece was um, about being not wanting to be perceived potentially as weak by their teammates. Um, uh, I, I don't know if you all completed an analysis like this or if you all could potentially speak on this, but throughout the course of, I guess, a collegiate career, did we see were freshmen potentially more likely to um, report weakness compared to some of the, the later counterparts throughout their junior and senior year? No, go ahead. Sorry Sorry about that. I think that was one of the limitations that we stated within the paper was just that a big portion of our data came from incoming first year students. Um, And that may have played a role in some of the data, um, but that's not necessarily something that we can totally come out and say, because that's not something that we totally dug into, but that's, that's an opportunity for future research for us to dig deep into that and find out what are those differences as you go throughout your collegiate career, what type of knowledge that you're gaining, what type of access and resources and things that you're learning um, as you continue your collegiate career. Yeah, I think that would be just fascinating to know when we think about like assimilating to our environment and our culture and seeing how it can change from, I didn't have access in high school, now I have this access in college and what that looks like over the course of the, the collegiate career. And one of the things you all recommended was potentially exploring larger scale community-based interventions to try and mitigate concussion non-disclosure. Could you potentially discuss what this looked like, what this would look like, and how athletic training and the athletic training community can fit into this intervention model? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, we really try to emphasize this a lot within the context of our results, especially as we're comparing what we found in high school athletes compared to collegiate athletes, right? And so we really emphasize that health disparities framework, um, which that means uh, what we're doing with research really is to first detect differences. Then we need to understand those differences. And ultimately, the work that we're doing needs to translate to reducing and mitigate any differences that we see, right? So if we look at concussion research as a whole, really a lot of it is done in communities with a greater access to resources. You know, as a scientist, as a researcher, when there are people in the community to help you do research, that makes things easy, easier. And unfortunately, there are many communities that within the United States that are marginalized and just have no resources. And so when we're talking about research and really what's been done, there are many communities that have been left behind, right? And so really, as people are and communities are operating with minimal resources, this means that injuries like concussion and not just concussion, you know, we are a lot of us uh, that are authored this paper, we do concussion research, but I think this can translate to any type of injury, orthopedic or um, our healthcare issue. Um, it really means that there's a good chance that a lot of things are going unreported, um, undiagnosed, and they're slipping through the cracks in healthcare, right? Um, so what we're trying to do is really emphasize that for us to make changes um, and propel research forward, we have to get into communities that have been historically excluded uh, and that are maybe a little bit harder for us to reach um, as researchers, right? So it's really going to take intentional efforts to get involved doing community-based work and then designing interventions um, 
and, and programs that are going to mitigate disparities, ultimately within this framework, reducing disparities, narrowing gaps. Um, and that's going to really include approaches that are using a health equity lens. So what we do in one community might be very different than what we do in, in another community. So really including this translational approach um, to our research, not just examining differences and then leaving it at that, really digging deeper so we uh, gravitate to making changes um, and reducing these gaps. Um, personally, and almost everything that, that I do research-wise, I really like to emphasize the presence of an athletic trainer. I think at the community level, an athletic trainer is one of the most powerful um, healthcare providers that can help to mitigate and reduce disparities. Um, when there is presence of an athletic trainer for our physically active population, that person can do a lot in terms of providing resources, healthcare, and then helping patients navigate the healthcare system, right? Um, so I'm always a huge advocate of athletic trainers in this sense to, to really be involved. And, and that goes with, you know, well, we know that there are many communities that don't have access to an athletic trainer and to keep pushing forward um, and emphasizing the importance of an athletic trainer and um, equitable access to an athletic trainer. Tam, I'm sure Tam has um, something to add there as well. Yeah, I'm just thinking about how exciting it is to be a part of, of this particular project because I remember looking back at some of the high school data and being like, man, what if, you know, some of these kids had access? What type of healthcare would they have right now? You know, and it just, you know, it brings me joy that this is the type of stuff that we're figuring out and finding out. But now it's the part of like, we need to take action and make sure that we are giving this access because our high school athletes are going to become our collegiate athletes, right? And some of them may be behind the curve. How do we, how do we fix that? How do we accommodate them earlier? It's by exactly what Dr. Wallace was saying, like collaborating, pushing for athletic trainers, being in high schools. We provide great healthcare. We're a resource that, you know, I think that they deserve, you know what I mean? And so I think that, um, the goal is to take this equitable lens, right, and start applying that with real action. Um, and it's going to take all of us to keep pushing that forward. I, I can feel the joy and excitement through the screen. And I'm like just as excited because I think um, just what you mentioned about uh, across other injuries, orthopedic injuries, musculoskeletal injuries, um, there's we see that there's probably this issue um, occurring in all of these different uh, populations. Um, I, I guess I, my question is, it sounds like there has to be some intentionality with targeting these different communities in order for us to improve access, in order for us to really identify that these are problems that are being there, just as you mentioned, potentially um, diseases and disorders that are being undiagnosed. Um, I, for uh, just in general, do you have recommendations as researchers are trying to be more inclusive with their samples and trying to uh, get into these communities to uh, get them involved in research. Do you have any recommendations for researchers on how they can start to, to start that process? Yeah. So my biggest recommendation is developing relationships and being present. So 
For us in academia, that can be challenging, right? Because we're up against a lot of different things in terms of what our job description includes and writing and publishing and meetings and, and everything. This, this can be hard. However, there has to be intentional effort to really get involved in the community. Um, for us to really make change, those relationships have to be made. They have to see you. They have to trust you. Um, and that includes showing up. Right. And so uh, you have to build those things into your schedule. Um, if that's something that you really want to do, if you really want to make the change, and that's just something that you have to be intentional about. Um, it can't be as simple as dropping surveys off, picking them up. You have to be present and do the boots on the ground work and, and make relationships, making relationships with. Um, so I do a lot in high schools. Right. So high school administrators, coaches, the athletic trainers, if they're present, the athletic directors, the, the athletes, the parents, um, and, and just being open because those relationships are just going to lead you to other projects. And then you really build that community atmosphere where you're really working together and you have a lot of buy-in from everybody um, to mitigate these problems, reduce these problems. So not just at that individual level, but also in interpersonal and community levels and, and yeah. targeting from the top down and bottom up to try and really get into those communities. That's really a, a great advice for clinicians and researchers like myself that want to be a bit more intentional with our recruiting. Um, so along the lines, as it relates to clinicians, what recommendations would you have for a clinician to be cognizant of these different types of social determinants of health in their practice? I think as a clinician, it also goes back, I'm literally just piggybacking off of what Jessica just said, but it's about the relationships and then letting the research inform our clinical practice. Mm -hmm. um, things are changing. The demographic and makeup of our collegiate athletes is changing, where a majority of athletes participating in particular sports, and I know we're talking about concussions here, where a, a large population of our athletic population that play in risk like high concussion risk sports are black athletes and what does that mean and what information do we have from the research that'll help us be better clinicians for all of our athletes right patients center care wise for them individually so I think it's really about forming relationships with other researchers calling them texting them asking them how you can be more involved I know that's kind of scary from the clinical side sometimes, but I know that I want to be the best healthcare provider that I can be. And I know that the researchers are the ones that are helping me inform my practice. So that was the first thing that I wanted to say before we moved on. Um, but in terms of social determinants of health, I think it also goes back to what Jessica was talking about of being aware of those disparities and then trying to figure out and evaluate the current procedures and policies we already have in place that are supposed to um, have those interventions to prevent some of those things and saying, are we doing what we think we're doing? Are we providing the care we think that we're providing? And if not, how can we structure the things that we're doing to improve the interventions that we have so that we are providing better healthcare for all of our athletes based on their experiences living this life, going through life and being a collegiate athlete. We're all about helping and aiding and accommodating them, but let's do it to the best of our abilities to make sure that we're doing it specifically for them, that it's patient-centered. Um, and it's not this one-size-fits-all, let's just do it like this because that's the way we've been doing it. But again, piggybacking back to letting the research inform our clinical practice. 
I really appreciate the evidence-based practice um, uh, commentary that you're providing. Um, I also think researchers, we also have to be cognizant of making sure we're doing research that can help clinicians inform their practice as well. So I think it can go both ways. So it was really exciting to, to read this paper and, and to see this collaboration between clinicians and researchers coming together to, to make some changes. Um, my, my last question is, if I were to walk into my athletic training facility today and I wanted to make an immediate change, uh, what recommendation would you provide for me? I would say, <laughs> I think it's doing the work up front. And I, I don't know, I think that being an athletic trainer, everything we do is about having a relationship. So I feel like I'm just repeating everything that Jessica was saying. But when you have a real rapport with your community, with the people that you're collaborating with, with all the stakeholders involved in your sport or within your um, clinic, whatever it is, wherever you're treating people, um, it's all about the relationships. You have to do the work up front. You have to learn their background. You have to learn where they come from, how they do things, how they see this world and how they're walking in it. And you have to have an appreciation for that. And then you have to say to yourself, what am I doing to making to make sure that they're having the best experience possible, that they're getting the best healthcare possible? And it's a lot of like critically reflecting what you're doing as a clinician as well um, and seeing where your weaknesses are and, and those things like that and just getting better as a clinician to help you be a better healthcare provider for your clientele, for your patients, um, for your department, whoever you're working for. But it's really, I keep, I feel like I'm just repeating myself, but it's really about the relationships and doing the work up front. So potentially going into my clinic and having that, that hard conversation or having just an initial conversation to try and learn about someone's background that maybe I didn't know previously. With any approach, um, really make sure that there are genuine intentions behind it, right? So, you know, within the context of this work, we're doing it because we want to shift practice. We want to change the lens and the way people are maybe approaching things. And ultimately, we want to provide better health care and change people's lives, right? So having that genuine approach, um, back to what uh, Tamara said, trust and relationships are number one. Um, And so whether you're doing something to guide clinical practice or to incorporate something into research, really have genuine intention behind your purpose. Definitely appreciate that message too. Uh, Tamara, Jessica, do you all have any last minute thoughts, anything that you really want to communicate to our readership? I feel like as a clinician, sometimes it's a little scary to hop into the research world and academia, but it has been one of the most fulfilling things that has happened to me and I have such great relationships with athletic trainers who are doing a lot of the research, again, that informs my clinical practice. Um, and going back to the relationships, it's all about reaching across the aisle and collaborating to make our profession better and to also teach others that we are really important healthcare providers. And I know that now more than ever that people are starting to realize how important we are and the things that we do. And so um, I think just just doing our very best each day and trying to get a little bit better um, and just doing a little bit of work uh, will make huge strides in how you're taking care of your student athletes. I echo everything um, that she said. Um, And I guess my last message is, you know, just keep advocating and pushing for um, 
equitable access to athletic trainers. Um, so, you know, uh, I'm really a strong believer that presence of an athletic trainer is one of the best ways to reduce um, health healthcare disparities um, because that translates to the healthcare of the, our adolescents, our youth, but then also communication to parents, coaches, administrators, um, kind of that community-wide uh, relationships. I think those are both great take-home messages. And I hope that our th- those watching this um, podcast or listening to the podcast or watching the video, uh, we'll take that to heart um, as we continue to try and figure out how we can uh, enhance care for our patients. So thank you both so much for joining me today. Um, as a reminder, this article is available free of charge by the Journal of Athletic Training. I highly recommend everyone go and download this, this current manuscript when it comes out in an upcoming issue. Again, thank you both so much, and we will see you next time.